The author of the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx, died 150 years ago. He remains perhaps the most controversial philosopher of the modern world, and this is for some important reasons. More than any other philosopher, or indeed any transient political figure, Marx has been fiercely admired or contemptuously despised for more than a hundred years. Marx is considered either a gatekeeper to an objective view of modern injustice or himself a master of a perverse ideology that denigrates modern achievements and rights. And so, political activists of left and right cite Marx as an inspiration or ogre of cultural Marxism. One of the earliest Marxists, Edward Bernstein, writing in 1897, said this, To the average Englishman, Karl Marx is in regard to social politics an ultra-revolutionary state socialist, the advocate of violent overthrow of all constituted order in government. Considering the great influence Marx and his school of thought hold upon the socialist labour movement of today, it may not seem untimely to investigate how far this impression is justified. That was a good point. It was made 125 years ago by a prominent follower of Marx who also questioned the correctness of Marx's claims 14 years after Marx had died. I want to raise the matter again. Was Marx right? Was he wrong? Was he a genius? Or was Marx a dangerous fool? Or even something worse? Can we learn anything important from Karl Marx and what can that be? It is appropriate to give a quick overview of Karl Marx and his main ideas. Born just a fraction over 200 years ago, in 1818, Marx wrote a variety of articles, letters, unpublished manuscripts, a pamphlet, the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848, and much later, a huge book, Das Kapital, or Capital in English. Only part one was published in Marx's lifetime, in 1863. Marx argued that agricultural-based societies were being transformed, both in terms of what was produced, how it was produced, and who controlled production. He argued that capitalist economic relations would transform the world, sucking every society, every human being, into the vortex. Put simplistically, wealth is generated under capitalism in the form of commodities. The people who do the labouring, mostly in factories, to produce those commodities are a class of people called proletariat, or working class in the modern term. What they produce is owned by the capitalist, or entrepreneurs, we sometimes call them. The capitalist sells the product, keeps the profit, and gives the worker just enough to live. Too many commodities of a particular sort are produced because it is a free market system with continuous production increases and improvements, resulting in economic crises and unemployment. So despite its revolutionary power to develop production, 
capitalism has a tendency to fall over and fails to generate full human potential nor a just distribution, according to Marx. In the early 1800s, Great Britain was already a relatively urbanised society dominated by so-called capitalist relations of production. Other countries and regions in Europe were transforming from feudalism, from backward peasant societies dominated by agricultural production. Eventually, Marx argued, capitalism would spread everywhere, bust down all the barriers between states, wipe out archaic economic and social systems. This would leave two dominant classes in the world, the bourgeoisie, roughly that part of the middle class who owns the means of production, who own the factories and large companies and banks, and the working class, those who own nothing, no capital, just their ability to work. Marx argued that capitalist interests dominated the agenda of the state and that workers would eventually have to take over political power, i.e. the state, and he encouraged them to do it sooner rather than later. The most famous effort to make Marx's idea come to life happened in Russia starting in 1917 with the Russian Revolution. This event has been debated ever since by left and right in terms of its faithfulness with Marx's vision. The Russian Revolution was treated as a triumph of communism by the left in the 1930s, but it became an embarrassment after World War II when atrocities and oppression were exposed. The political right condemned Russia's communism for both economic underperformance and the political repression. They therefore condemned Marx too as the architect of that economic system which collapsed in Russia in 1991, 30 years ago. I don't intend to examine Russian Marxism. That will be for another day. I will look almost exclusively at the Communist Manifesto and some immediate historic context. The most recent famous negative portrayal of Karl Marx was by Jordan Peterson in the Toronto meeting of 2019 with Slavoj Zizek. Peterson there attempted a demolition job on Marx's Communist Manifesto. This effort was largely an intellectual catastrophe, as Peterson did not understand the material that he was criticising. Peterson's attack on Marx comes from a decades-long tradition of questioning or denigrating Marx's analyses. Probably the most famous early example was the philosopher Bertrand Russell in 1896, arguing that Marx's ideas were mostly unproven or disproven. Disagreement about Marx's philosophy has also occurred within the left among his early supporters. In the late 1800s, Marxists emerged who were famous in their own right, such as Karl Kautsky and Edward Bernstein. Vladimir Lenin, a theoretician before he was leader of the Soviet Union, condemned both of them as reformers rather than revolutionaries. Conservatives and right-wing ideologues 
confidently declare communism is a failure and that Marx is irrelevant. And there are still countries that are self-declared Marxist slash communist states. China, with a so-called communist one-party system, rules around one-fifth of humanity and has been, for 20 years, the fastest-growing economy in the world. That does not make Marx make Marx right or wrong, but it still begs the question, how does Marx or communism relate to the structure and success or failure or justice of states such as China or the USA and their continued existence? Marxism survives as a theory or as an ideology because it is supported in particular countries as a state-funded ideology. But it also survives in academia in the so-called capitalist West. Marx has continued presence in US universities, for example. Some surveys suggest that a fifth of academics in sociology identify overtly as Marxist. The percentage is likely to be higher when considering so-called cultural Marxism, which includes academics who are left-leaning but don't necessarily identify as Marxist. And finally, Karl Marx's ideas also survive in individual minds because, like it or not, he is writing in a clear and compelling manner. He provided a credible explanation of the driving forces of modern history as well as ideas for the just and rational organisation of economies. Whether or not you approve, the polemics are excellent. This is the point where I confess my own intellectual background and discovery processes. This talk is the product of analysis as well as personal experience. I spent many years studying Marx and believe some of his ideas are essential for understanding modern politics and economics. At the same time, I was never fully convinced of the totality of Marx's arguments. Researching for this subject has helped to confirm that scepticism, which had never fully coagulated. So, I am a Marxist scholar, but I don't identify as Marxist, and I certainly have issues with Marxists and socialism. In the past, I took very little interest in Marx's 1848 Communist Manifesto, which is the most intense statement of Marx's radicalism and vision for a future society. My interest was focused on Capital, or Das Kapital, a book that Marx had published some 20 years after the Communist Manifesto. The later text solidified Marx's reputation. Capital is focused on the myriad technical details of the historical development of British capitalism. But it is the Communist Manifesto, a short polemical text that gets the most followers and inspiration and criticism. It is only around 30 pages, but analysing the Communist Manifesto is a hell of a task and much bigger than I anticipated when I started this exercise. It contains so much, especially concepts that require in-depth understanding of class, history, injustice, 
power and social dynamics. I suspect that I did suffer what almost all scholars and academics must experience when they admire an author, a Stockholm Syndrome. That is, an inadequate expression for a complex intellectual imprisonment. Let's just say that your admiration and fascination, your sense of participating in a vision and certainty, stop you from engaging critically. I did struggle with this issue for many months. On with the show. It is appropriate before analysing Marx's famous text, The Communist Manifesto, to do some additional historical backgrounding. Unfortunately, that must remain limited here because of time constraints. Born in Trier, which is now in modern Germany, Karl Marx was Jewish, got a PhD, became a radical newspaper editor and wrote The Communist Manifesto all before the age of 30. He lived in interesting times. The French Revolution, which had started in the 1790s, had resulted in an extraordinary social and political turmoil in Europe. The famous Napoleon Bonaparte was not yet dead when Marx was born. However, the First French Republic had been defeated at Waterloo several years before in 1815. Many people were radicalised in the 1800s by social, political and economic disruption and the circulation of new ideas following the French Revolution and, incidentally, the American Revolution too. There was an increasingly powerful aspiration to live in independent countries based on ethnic or linguistic commonality. Germans, too, wanted to be part of a unified country and there was a debate about the sort of political arrangement it would be. Napoleon had actually created the Confederation of 16 Fragmented German States in 1804. After Napoleon's final defeat, Germans began to consider political unification. Notably, modern industry had developed in some of Germany's regions mainly the West, but the Confederacy was still dominated by the conservative, largely agricultural Prussia. In the early 1800s, there was rapid, chaotic industrial development across parts of Europe. There were also a series of political and economic crises that contributed to a revolutionary climax in 1848, which is when the Communist Manifesto was published. According to sources such as Wikipedia, the 1848 uprisings in Europe were essentially republican revolts against monarchical rule. It was called Springtime of the Peoples. You may note that the recent so-called Arab Spring resonates with that period. There were demands for constitutional government, parliamentary rule, democracy and the end of rule by birthright. There were riots in the streets of capital cities and confrontations with military forces. The revolts were suppressed, there were deaths and imprisonments of protest leaders. 
If you want to get a better flavour of 1848, that crucial year, there has been a similar atmosphere in recent times. For example, Hong Kong riots occurred from early 2019 against the new extradition laws with mainland China. In Chile, there was likewise a revolt late in 2019. Chilean riots were sparked by a protest against a minor fare rise for the capital city subway and immediately escalated to destruction of infrastructure, fighting against police, looting and finally mass protests involving millions of people in the streets. In the US, from May 2020, toward the end of the first term of the Trump presidency, there also emerged a large protest movement. The US revolt was ostensibly sparked by the unjust killing of a black man, George Floyd, in May 2020 and overlapped with the Black Lives Matter movement. The US protests resulted in burning of cars, buildings, fighting against police, looting and deaths. Following the 1848 riots slash uprisings, there were several reforms in European states. The last remnant of serfdom, for example, was finally abolished in Germany and Austria. Other states developed greater democratic representation. But overall, there was a consolidation of conservative and monarchical power, while industrial development continued. To those who lived in the first half of the 1800s, events may have seemed chaotic, random. It was Karl Marx who put forward the most powerful, enduring concept for what was happening. Marx developed an entire explanation of human history with economic injustice as the engine of political activity. In addition, he had a philosophy of action of a response to overthrow the injustice and a theoretical outcome, triumph of the oppressed. The economic and political developments that were sweeping Europe and the world were captured in the pamphlet called the Communist Manifesto. I am going to go through the manifesto chapter by chapter, picking up some of the key ideas and arguments, and this won't take long because it is a short document. The opening statement of the Communist Manifesto is A spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. This is a peculiar loaded claim by Marx, taking the reader directly into an obscure historical detail. There had indeed been several authors, mainly French, who had theorised about communism as a political-slash-economic principle, mainly against the inequality generated by private ownership and production. Marx borrowed several of his key communist ideas from these theorists. Also, across Germany and France, there had been secret radical organisations with a communist character that were the foundation of the Communist League. One of these organisations was called the League of Outlaws, founded in 1834. This was followed by the League of the Just in 1836. Marx became a member of the League 
1847 with his close associate Friedrich Engels. That is when it was renamed the Communist League and the Communist Manifesto was the manifesto of this league. How threatening was a communist spectre in terms of the widespread social unrest happening in 1848? I would say that it was a small threat in terms of viability, although a large threat if they had been successful in their attempted revolution slash coup. What is true is that Marx's own variation of communism would become a spectre haunting Europe and indeed the rest of the world. Furthermore, the entire history of modern-day social democracy and political processes is embedded in that movement. In any case, the opening statement of the Communist Manifesto is bombastic, theatrical, exaggerated, and not exactly scientific. This opening claim demonstrates an aspiration of the radicals that Marx represented to be a frightening ogre of a new power base, the workers of the emerging capitalist society. Incidentally, I believe the makers of the Russian Revolution were faithful to the concepts that were expressed in the Communist Manifesto, and that therefore Russia's communism was a kind of rendition of the Communist Manifesto. But that needs to be discussed in detail another time. In Chapter 1 of the Communist Manifesto, called Bourgeois and Proletarians, Marx provides a compelling, simplified model of economic history, using his category of classes and their relations to the production of social wealth. As Marx argues, agriculturally based feudal society was on the way out at the time of writing and so-called urbanised, industrial, bourgeois-dominated society was in. By the way, Marx never uses the term capitalism in the Communist Manifesto. The word capitalism is used later by Marxists to describe a system. But Marx was not thinking about a system. He thought about social economic relations, relations between people. Therefore, Marx uses the word capitalist. And in the Communist Manifesto, the word capitalist is used almost interchangeably with the word bourgeois, which he uses to describe the owners of capital. In this chapter, Marx makes a famous statement that is rather tricky. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. One of many powerful, memorable expressions from Marx and from the Communist Manifesto. What Marx wanted to do with this one sentence is change our perception of history. Instead of the famous events, the battles, the conquests, the discoveries, Think instead about the day-to-day -day life of entire societies, the mass of people that compose society. It is an economic life and marked by inequality of distribution of socially produced goods and economic injustice. Don't think about the so-called noble deeds and decisions of kings and generals. Switch your thinking to the master and the servant and their relationship 
the exploiter and the exploited, the oppressor and the oppressed. I don't accept Marx's spin that relationships of economic interaction are the real history. But it is true that economic injustice may historically have been ignored or manipulated. Marx puts a spotlight on this subject in a new way. I think Marx wanted to put such an intense focus on this subject that it replaces our awareness of any other issues and conflicts. It is certainly propaganda. Marx here laid the foundation for one of the two most powerful liberation ideologies of modern times. The other ideology is the liberal free market model, arguably originating in Adam Smith. Marx knew the free market model and argued that this was a fraud promoted by the capitalist class for their own interests. It's a simple, powerful argument, but we have to be wary. We can take this argument of Marx as either an extraordinary insight, an imperative to follow, a vision of the present and the future, or we can take it as an unsubstantiated misrepresentation that should be exposed. Let's hold off on judgment for the moment. One of the reasons that Marx is so compelling is his uncanny representation of the entrepreneurial class and capitalist process. The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labour. It would be hard for anyone to doubt the claim that colossal productive forces have been unleashed in the world over the last 300 years. But Marx give that, gives that revolution a specific character. Global industrial development was, and arguably is, driven by competitive businesses chasing pro profitable production. Waves of industrialization are matched by waves of economic collapse when capitalists stop investing. Industries and entire geographic regions are abandoned. Marx cited the bourgeoisie as the rulers of the new economic order. In talking about the bourgeoisie, Marx was thinking mainly, I think, of Britain's rulers and leaders and industry. It was Britain that was the primary example of capitalist industry, banking, scientific innovation and upheaval. In any case, Marx would later focus on Britain as his case study for the book Capital. Marx anticipated that industrialization would spread throughout the world. The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. Marx wrote those words 150 years ago. His words remain relevant to modern production, modern innovation, modern enterprises, such as Apple, Amazon, Airbnb, Google, Facebook, Uber. One important understanding about Marx comes from this part of his text, 
He, in a sense, admires capitalist achievements, contrary to contemporary claims from left and right that he hated capitalism. He is an incredible spokesman for capitalism's extraordinary dynamics. Marx had several observations about capitalism in Chapter 1 of the Communist Manifesto on the negative side. Some of these observations are extraordinary insights, but some appear to be misjudgments, predictions that came true and predictions that did not come true, or at least not consistently true or not yet true. These observations include Marx's expectation of, number one, recurring crises, number two, worsening crises due to, number three, his prediction of increasing centralization of economic power and therefore shrinking of the middle class, and number four, the immiseration of the working class. I will look at each of these in a bit more detail. Marx highlighted an inherent issue with capitalist production, uncontrolled overproduction of commodities resulting in an economic crisis. There breaks out an epidemic that, in all earlier epochs, would have seemed an absurdity, the epidemic of overproduction. This claim by Marx is profound, but perhaps also obvious. Capitalist-style free market investment leads to the employment of labour to produce new goods for profit. The chaotic or free market character of capitalist production leads to an excess of commodities. In Marx's time, that included railway equipment and cotton. Prices fall. Any enterprise that cannot survive the low prices will be wiped out. An industry crisis occurs when the impact of so-called overproduction is limited to one industry. But an economic and social crisis occurs when there is a knock-on effect and banks that funded the previous boom collapse. In the two decades since the tech wreck crisis of 2001, new global capitalist giants have emerged and there has been a decline if not wiping out of several former industries and technologies. It started with email, which emerged in the 1990s, slowly replacing paper, letter writing and traditional postal services. Wired landline telephones were supplemented by mobile phones, eventually replaced by mobile phones, which incidentally have also hammered the camera industry telephone books replaced by Google search, encyclopedias by Wikipedia, bookstores substantially reduced by Amazon, news agencies eliminated by online news and magazine editions, CDs replaced by music streaming, television replaced by Netflix on tablets, taxicabs replaced substantially by Uber and other app-based transport models. Currently under assault, home cooking with new food delivery models and paper money in trouble through electronic transactions and perhaps Bitcoin models. 
All of this has happened in the last 20 years. All of this on a global scale. All of these individual developments have created crises in individual industries. And of course, there was the global financial crisis of 2009. Marx argued that capitalist crises would get worse and that they would not be manageable. He described more extensive and more destructive crises. This has not been borne out by the facts, and there are a number of reasons for that which counteract Marx's prediction. For example, there has been national regulation of the capitalist investment process and international cooperation to adapt to the impact of potential crises. Government employment represents a large share of total employment in modern economies, providing some stability to overall wages and spending. Social welfare services in many countries have also ensured that the unemployed receive a range of benefits until they find new work. Companies are bailed out, such as in the global financial crisis, to reduce the immediate impact of crisis. And to a great extent, as long as there are profitable avenues of investment, crisis is averted or delayed. I am being cynical, but Marx really needed his argument for increasingly bad crises to be true. The entire narrative in the Communist Manifesto depends on it, and that is because the crises need to be more severe in order to precipitate rebellion among the poor, the oppressed. But anyway, there are other reasons why Marx's prediction of increasingly severe crisis is false. And this is related to a separate claim that Marx makes regarding the wages of the worker. Marx made a misleading claim in regard to wages. He says in the Communist Manifesto, in Chapter 1, The cost of production of a workman is restricted almost entirely to the means of subsistence that he requires for maintenance. Marx argued that this subsistence was a miserable one, barely alive, just enough to live. At the same time, that bare minimum wage is a market-determined amount. Around the time that Marx was writing, men were replaced by women in some factories. In turn, women were replaced by children in factories and mines. Some children working in mines were as young as five years old, working 12-hour shifts. That seems like a fairly miserable picture. Well, this was true at some point in the 1800s in Europe, but in the longer term, it was less and less true, and Marx knew that this was happening. In part, these practices diminished due to legislation, but it improved. For example, the Mines and Collieries Act of 1842 in Britain restricted women and children under 10 years old from working in mines. Marx knew, but he failed to consider the implications. In the Communist Manifesto, 
Marx celebrated the achievement of the 10-hour day by workers. By the 1860s, 20 years later, there was agitation for the 8-hour day. Furthermore, the miserable subsistence theory is not entirely logical. As capitalists produce more and more goods, more and more cheaply, there is only so much that the capitalists and the middle class can consume as luxuries. A mass market, which includes the workers, provides a legitimate avenue for the sale of an abundance of commodities. This was true then, as it is now. In the 1800s, capitalists sold cotton goods to rich and to poor. Equally, the sellers of mobile phones today sell phones to the rich, but they sell the vast majority to the masses, including the working class. If this is subsistence, then it is a subsistence with more and more value consumption, effectively a higher standard of living. Some Marxists dishonestly claim that subsistence of the working class is a concept that is flexible. No, this is not what Marx was promoting in the Communist Manifesto. Marx used that document to cast a negative and pessimistic light on capitalism in order to fulfill the Communist Party agenda. In practice, working conditions and wages of labourers have improved historically, partly as the result of union organisation, yes, but also partly because capitalists periodically need to offer higher wages to find employees. Apart from market-based developments, there have been interventions by capitalist or bourgeois states. Governments have intervened to provide services to the working class to ensure greater stability of income and stability in the supply of labour. This phenomenon was powerfully evident with the welfare measures first introduced in Germany in the 1880s under Otto Bismarck. It was called State Socialism, and it served to pacify working-class anxiety about economic crises or unemployment. More on that another time, because it is a fascinating and important story. What we can say, in defence of Marx's argument, is that in many modern capitalist societies, millions of people do live one step away from some form of immiseration. Any economic disruption can send them into an economic crisis. Many workers have no savings, no capital, and it has been an intervention of the state that has reduced potential economic trauma and political conflict as a consequence of capitalist disruption. Marx argued in the Communist Manifesto, Chapter 1, that bigger, more successful capitalists would destroy smaller capitalists, entrepreneurs and professionals. Production would concentrate. This would result in a shrinking middle class and a large portion of those people would throw in their lot with the working poor. Here is the quote. 
entire sections of the ruling class are, by the advance of industry, precipitated into the proletariat. The small tradespeople, shopkeepers, and retired tradesmen generally, the handicraftsmen and peasants, all these sink gradually into the proletariat. This claim by Marx was controversially refuted by one of his followers, the Marxist Edward Bernstein, who studied government data from Germany in the late 1800s that revealed the opposite trend to Marx's prediction. Yes, small companies were and are swallowed up by big conglomerates, but equally new small industries develop, new skills, trades and professions were demanded by capitalist economies in the late 1800s. The working class needed to be more educated to perform their jobs. Therefore, society needed more teachers, more architects, more doctors, more mechanics, more engineers, more scientists. The middle class flourished. The rich got richer. The middle class got wider and richer and even the poor got richer. Indeed, since Marx died, hundreds of millions of people have moved from working class status and conditions to middle class status and conditions all over the world. Marx's immiseration thesis was false or misleading. Partially true, sometimes true, mostly wrong. The notion of a shrinking middle class was also false, or to be kind to Marx, that forecast has been inaccurate to date. These factors have a fundamental impact on how we should treat Marx's predictions and his imperative for revolutionary anti-capitalist upheaval. Bernstein had pointed out in the late 1800s that periodic economic crisis did awaken anger among fractions of society and improved the credibility and relevance of Marx's concepts. But it was not a compelling reason for an uprising among a critical mass of the population of any country. Bernstein also argued that social reforms combined with voting rights for workers blunted the revolutionary imperative among workers. Why did Marx maintain or emphasize the messianic representation of capitalism? Contrary, or at least I thought contrary, to his profound examination of the tendencies of capitalism. I think Karl Marx was so interested in promoting a cataclysmic scenario of capitalism that he ignored key tendencies that would dominate societies with capitalist market processes. Notably, the Marxist movement buried Bernstein and maintained their adherence to a fully formed worship of Marx's negatively flavoured axioms. But wait, there's more. Chapter 2 of the Communist Manifesto is titled Proletarians 
and communists. The chapter includes diverse claims that cannot be given in-depth treatment here. The main theme of the chapter is communist policies and counterclaims about communist intentions. Many times it has been said that Marx never indicated how a post-capitalist communist society would look. That is not true. He actually gave a powerful indication in this chapter of the social, political and economic structure that he wanted to impose. Marx made it clear in this chapter that The theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence Abolition of private property Marx meant abolition of private ownership of large profitable companies and no doubt medium-sized enterprises too but it ultimately included any productive social resources such as farmland in practice the policy may extend to any private ownership such as owning a house or apartment obviously marx's policy would meet fierce opposition from anybody who owned anything or who aspired to own anything this policy would result in a bureaucratic management of production and consumption, and the working class would experience no particular relief from work as a consequence of such a structure. Marx then cites a series of other policies and essentially fantasies about a future under communism, including the abolition of prostitution, an end to colonialism and war. Sexual freedom to be denied, leaving some men and women extremely frustrated. And the end of war? That was certainly wishful thinking in 1847. Certainly, countries that have abolished private property never avoided war in the interim. Marx uses Chapter 2 of the Communist Manifesto to outline concrete communist predictions about working class strategies to gain power. This part is confusing conceptually and perhaps disingenuous. Marx again. The proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest, by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie. Marx talks as if the proletariat has a vision about a program of action, even though the actions promoted are those of his communists. One later Marxist explained this dilemma well. Vladimir Lenin wrote in a book, What is to be Done, written over 100 years ago, that the communists, himself included, had the intellectual power to know what the working class needed. The working class did not have enough consciousness to know what they should want. The working class, exclusively by its own efforts, is able to develop only trade union consciousness, i.e. the conviction that it is necessary to combine in unions, fight the employers, and strive to compel the government to pass necessary labor legislation. Lenin even admits that Marx and Engels were bourgeois or middle class, but somehow immune from bourgeois consciousness. This is funny because, of course, Lenin himself was also bourgeois. 
the communists in practice were mainly, almost exclusively, middle class, in many cases upper class, educated agitators. In the case of Marx and everyone who followed him, this self-appointed elite wanted to tell the working class what to do, when to do it, and there would be no other options as the communists aspired to control the means of communication in future. Marx clearly did anticipate a violent transfer of power, supposedly to the working class, but in practice, the revolutionary, in brackets, communist leaders, in brackets, always middle-class radicals, had the specific vision. The dictatorship of the proletariat, which Marx mentions in the Communist Manifesto, would involve the seizing of power by a communist elite, a dictatorship, therefore, of the self-appointed cognoscenti. Chapter 3 of the Communist Manifesto is titled Socialist and Communist Literature. In this chapter, Marx takes potshots at competing left-wing radicals. His criticism of reformist streams reinforces his own extreme agenda. For example, he says that utopian socialists wish to obtain their ends by peaceful means, necessarily doomed to failure. According to Marx, another trend, conservative bourgeois socialism, is composed of philanthropists, humanitarians, improvers of the condition of the working class, organizers of charity, members of societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals, temperance fanatics. People in the 1800s who wanted to improve the condition of the working class. This may have included those to four, the final chapter of the Communist Manifesto. Marx argues that communists will always cooperate with the most progressive forces in society always pushing the working-class interest. But it seems that cooperation with more moderate leftists of any sort is always strategic or opportunistic. Marx took issue with reform movements because the reformers undercut the specific extreme agenda of the communists, which was to take state power. The more extreme the suffering and inequality the more popular the communists could become. This also helps to explain why communism gains in popularity, perhaps its only popularity, in time of economic crisis, when people fear for their economic security. In Chapter 4, the final chapter of the Communist Manifesto, Marx argues that communists will cooperate with other revolutionary forces in society, always pushing the working class interest. But cooperation with more moderate leftists is always strategic, ultimately, it seems, irreconcilable. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. 
Marx believed that Germany was on the eve of a bourgeois revolution. Private property is considered a sacred feature of bourgeois society, and yet the abolition of private property was a stated communist aim. Apart from nationalisation of private property, the communists outlined policies that involved a potentially violent conflict, not only with the existing absolute monarchical state, but with their potential allies, the other socialists. Marx made this tension clear with his call to the proletariat, who are characterised as a newly emerging power in society. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Marx goes all in to suggest that the working class should capture political power. This would involve an extraordinary historic development where a bourgeois revolution is surpassed by another revolution hot on its heels. Marx ends the Communist Manifesto with that call to arms to the working class and with the words that make the Communist Manifesto appear as an ode to an economic injustice and its quest for a resolution. Working men of all countries, unite. When Marx calls for working men to unite, this refers implicitly to political organisation, to the capture of state power. This feature of communist policy is in some ways unique. I want to emphasise this because Friedrich Engels indicated in 1851 that other socialists of the middle class had also tried to appeal to the working class in the revolutionary period prior to the publication of the Communist Manifesto. There was in the latter end of 1847 hardly a single prominent political character among the bourgeoisie who did not proclaim himself a socialist in order to ensure to himself the sympathy of the proletarian class. A critical examination of Marx's arguments is necessary. And this is a complicated task because the Communist Manifesto is so loaded with theoretical concepts, ideas about the past, the present and the future, assumed power relations and stated intentions that are at the least disputable. They are ideals versus reality and does Marx have a concept of reality that is accurate or is his idea itself also an ideology? I want to start this analysis by highlighting that Marx wove his rhetoric in the Communist Manifesto around the working class, its oppression, its liberation, and that ultimately the document calls out to them. Yet there is a fundamental weirdness. The Communist League was at its core, in its history, a bourgeois organisation composed of bourgeois individuals. One member, Heinrich Bauer, was a shoemaker. Karl Schapper studied forestry, joined a radical university fraternity. His father was a priest. William Wolfe came from a farming family, was a radicalised student and apparently later left a fortune to Marx. Friedrich Engels, decades later, after Marx died, made several astounding revelations when he reflected on that turbulent time in 1848 and the communist personnel. 
the members, insofar as they were workers at all, were almost exclusively artisans. Until Marx and Engels joined the Communist League, the so-called communist tradition had included violent psychopaths with a kind of clueless levelling mentality, if I read the history correctly. For example, one leading Communist League member, Wilhelm Weitling, got a following from other radicals with an apocalyptic ideology involving military-style violence. Indeed, his ideas are described as a highly emotional mix of babuvist communism, chiliastic Christianity and millenarian populism. The word babuvist refers to a Frenchman, Babouf, a proto-socialist revolutionary who died by guillotine in 1797. According to a wiki entry, most workers, even on extreme views, were repelled by Babouf's bloodthirstiness, and police reported that his agitation increased support for the government. When Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels joined the Communist League, they lifted the credibility of this obscure political party and changed the focus of its agitation. But it remains true that Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were bourgeois and so were all their main followers and so were the leaders of the secret societies that had preceded the Communist League. There's nothing wrong with that. In one sense, bourgeois simply means middle class. But the distinction between being proletarian or advocating for the working class is profound. Marx claimed to know the dynamics of world history and the fundamental interest of the working class. It was abolition of private property. And although Marx had extraordinary insights, I don't believe that Marx could know that nationalisation slash state ownership was an interest or a nascent demand of the working class. Lack of property is a typical condition of the working class. That does not mean at all that the propertylessness must be a condition imposed immediately on other classes. What Marx does is retrofit a justification for the primary communist policy, nationalisation. Indeed, it was a selective strategic nationalisation. Here is one of several such policy proposals. Princely and other feudal estates together with mines, pits and so forth shall become the property of the state. Not in the Communist Manifesto, but in a related document called Demands of the Communist Party in Germany. Many of the communist policies in the manifesto and in those related documents refer to the abolition of feudal structures, national development programs and nationalisation of key infrastructure. Marx wanted support from the working class for a political program that related to economic changes. That political program was to destroy the remnants of feudal economic structures, traditions and culture, and developing the basis for a modern economy. This was an aim of a communist elite 
a self-appointed bourgeois communist elite. Even though Marx advocated for working-class political power and abolition of private property, his immediate aim was not to crush capitalist activity entirely. In other words, not to suppress the bourgeoisie economically, but to harness their activity for national objectives. This is reflected in one key quote in the Communist Manifesto. The proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest, by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie. The operative expression is, by degree, but far more important is that it is not the proletariat that will use its political supremacy. It is the communist members of the aspiring ruling elite who would use the instrument of state power to manage slash constrain capitalist production. And they would use the revenue from nationalized enterprises for the use of the state, not to relieve the working class. But of course, the vast majority of the middle class would still be active economically. So the communists would, in the end, rule on behalf of the non-capitalist bourgeoisie too. What are conditions of the working class under communism? Well, Marx was focused on capturing state power in order to unify Germany and to set a path to modern economic development. He was not focused primarily on improving the working conditions of the working class. Marx condemned capitalist exploitation and alienation, but did not propose to relieve the working class of being the working class. He did not propose legislation for improved wages and conditions. Marx's revolutionary focus is demonstrated with the formation of the First International in 1864, 16 years after the Communist Manifesto was published. The so-called First International, which was a meeting of workers, set out to demand an eight-hour working day across countries of Europe. Karl Marx did not organise this meeting held in London. He attended as an obscure journalist, though he soon took a leading role. It seems to me that Marx helped to derail the modest practical purpose of that working class meeting, turning the first international into an ideological battleground between anarchists and what would come to be known as Marxists. Anarchists, led by a fellow called Mikhail Bakunin, who was incidentally a Russian nobleman, notably wanted to focus on more direct working-class demands for improved conditions. He thought that a dictatorship of the proletariat would end badly. We now know that the Marxist stream triumphed, or rather, the so-called labour movement evolved from the Marxist stream. Communist radicalism eventually transformed into a reformist program and achieved political power in a democratic context. Very briefly, the Communist Party in Germany was resurrected as the German Workers' Association in 1863. 
Then, as the Socialist Workers' Party in 1875, and then, finally, as the Social Democratic Party in 1890. The leader of that party is today German Chancellor Olaf Schulz, and apparently he also used to be a Marxist. The German SDP also became the model for all modern social democrat parties in the late 1800s, and that includes the British Labour Party and the Australian Labour Party. 90% of what Marx demanded in the Communist Manifesto or the demands of the Communist Party in Germany in 1848 have been achieved in most advanced industrialised countries. Indeed, quite a bit more has been achieved in terms of worker rights and privileges, and a lot of that has occurred under governments that were not necessarily left-wing. We now know, with the benefit of 150 years of hindsight, that the working class economic position is fluid, variable, mainly on an upward trajectory. Capitalist economic growth mixed with state regulation broadly ensures that the working class eventually consumes many of the same products as those higher up the class structure. Conditions improve, although during recessions, elements of the working class may suffer where social insurance is lacking. But politically, I don't believe that the working class has clearly defined power. Their situation is to follow the policies of competing blocks of left and right, and it is evident that the working class is not wedded only to left-wing ideas. Political power remains with the bourgeoisie, who in competing camps present policies that are manipulated to appeal to workers. Marx argued that capitalists, the bourgeoisie as he called it, but only in fact a fraction of the bourgeoisie, were on a path to transform the world. It was inevitable. British capitalism was one pioneering dominant model of such development of industrialization and modernization, but it was chaotic, inefficient and radically unequal. Marx had pointed this out. He was right in that regard. Marx accepted that industrialization and modernization, urbanization, etc., were part of the future, but he thought there could be a better, more efficient, more planned way to achieve this, as did many other writers. What Marx and the communists sought to do was gain working class support for an economic program expressed in the Communist Manifesto, a set of policies that had very little direct immediate benefit to the working class. Those policies, which have already been outlined, were in the realm of nation-building, rationalizing chaotic economic structures, centralizing key economic powers in the state, establishing a national bank, for example, or ensuring universal education. Notably, those schemes were beneficial to industry in the long term. What is the ultimate conclusion? We have, as a result of this distillation, 
a better picture of the power dynamics of modern society, of the modern economy. That portion of the bourgeoisie, who we broadly call the left, and to which Marx belonged, is intent on three main things. Eliminating archaic social formations and their wasteful impact on economic reproduction. Two, developing the collective basis for industrial growth, anything where state intervention is needed. And three, inhibiting the power of the capitalists, the entrepreneurial wing of the bourgeoisie. Marx's intention was to suppress the political power of capitalists, or indeed to nationalise some of their capital. Nevertheless, communist policies can form the bedrock of future capitalist economic activity. If I was to make one final, resounding, powerful and simplified conclusion, it would be to say that Marxism itself is bourgeois ideology. The Communist Manifesto is bourgeois ideology. The Communist Manifesto is an expression, albeit unconscious or obscured, of a middle-class plan with the participation of radicalised artisans, middle-class students, and even occasionally members of the working class for a future society, modernised, industrialised, focused on economic growth. The characteristics of such a plan to rebuild an economy brings so-called communists into conflict with any existing arrangement, existing interests, and any sentimental ideology about traditional political, economic, cultural, or family structures. Implicitly, the Communist Manifesto and its legacy in modern social democracy results in the development of a political and economic power structure that protects and develops the middle class. The working class were once the burning focus of the communist-slash-socialist social plan. Today, there are new social identities, new social subgroups and issues that could fulfil a similar, albeit again subservient, role. And that gives us a lot to work with for future analysis.